0: Section 3 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 7, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter 9, Part 3. On the 13th of September, 1586, seven out of the 14 conspirators were arraigned. They confessed their crime, and the depositions of Savage afford startling evidence, that the greatest danger to the person of the queen, proceeded from the constant persuasions of Walsingham's spy, Gifford, for the deed to be attempted, at any time or place, where opportunity might serve. As her majesty should go into her chapel to hear divine service, Gifford said, he, that is savage, might lurk in her gallery, and stab her with his dagger, or if she should walk in her garden, he might shoot her with his dag, or if she should walk abroad to take the air, as she often did, accompanied rather with women than men, and those men slenderly weaponed, then might he assault her with his arming sword, and make sure work, and though he might hazard his own life, he would be sure to gain heaven thereby. The greatest marvel in the whole business is, that such advice as this, addressed by Gifford in his vain character of a catholic priest, to men of weak judgments, excitable tempers and fanatic principles did not cost the queen her life but walsingham in his insatiable thirst for the blood of mary stuart appears to have forgotten that contingency and even the possibility that by employing agents to urge others to attempt the assassination of his sovereign the accusation of devising her death might have been retorted upon himself gifford was suffered to depart to france unquestioned and unmolested but the fourteen deluded culprits were sentenced to expiate their guilt by undergoing the dreadful penalty decreed by the law to traitors. Elizabeth was so greatly exasperated against them that she intimated to her counsel the expediency of adopting some new device, whereby their sufferings might be rendered more acute and more calculated to strike terror into the spectators. Burley, with businesslike coolness, explained to her majesty that the punishment prescribed by the letter of the law was to the full as terrible as anything new that could be devised if the executioner took care to protract the extremity of their pains in the sight of the multitude that functionary appears to have acted on this hint by barbarously cutting the victims down before they were dead and then proceeding to the completion of his horrible task on each in turn according to the dread minutiae of the sentence of which the thrilling lines of campbell have given a faint picture life flutters convulsed in each quivering limb and his blood streaming eyeballs in agony swim accursed be the embers that blaze at his feet where his heart shall be cast ere it ceases to beat with the smoke of its ashes to poison the gale the revolting circumstances with which the executions of the seven principal conspirators were attended excited the indignation of the bystanders to such a pitch that her majesty found it expedient to issue an especial order that the other seven should be more mercifully dealt with they were therefore strangled before the concluding horrors of the barbarous sentence were inflicted these sanguinary scenes were but the prelude to the consummation of the long premeditated tragedy of the execution of the queen of scots for which the plot against elizabeth's life had prepared the public mind immediately after the apprehension of babington and his associates mary had been removed unexpectedly from chartley to taxall and her papers and money seized during her absence her two secretaries now and curl were arrested and threatened with the rack to induce them to bear witness against their unfortunate mistress. They were at first careful not to commit her by their admissions, which they well knew they could not do, without implicating themselves in the penalty. Burley, penetrating the motives of their reserve, wrote to Hatton his opinion, coupled with his facetious remark, that they would yield somewhat to confirm their mistress's crimes, if they were persuaded that themselves might escape, and the blow fall upon their mistress between her head and shoulders. This suggestion was acted upon, and combined with the terror occasioned by the execution of Babington and his associates, drew from them sufficient admissions to serve for evidence against their mistress. The angry and excited state of feeling to which Elizabeth's mind had been worked up against her unfortunate kinswoman may be plainly seen in the following letter, written by her to Sir Amius Paulet. Soon after the removal of the Queen of Scots to the gloomy fortress of Fotheringay, Queen Elizabeth to Sir Amias Paulet, Amias, my most faithful and careful servant, God reward thee treblefold for thy most troublesome charge so well discharged. If you knew, my Amias, how kindly, besides most dutifully, my grateful heart accepts and prizes your spotless endeavours and faultless actions your wise orders and safe regard, performed in so dangerous and crafty a charge, it would ease your travails and rejoice your heart, in which I charge you place this most just thought, that I cannot balance in any weight of my judgment the value that I prize you at, and suppose my treasures to countervail such a faith. If I reward not such deserts, let me lack when I have most need of you. If I acknowledge not such merit, non omnibus dictum, let your wicked murderess his prisoner Mary, queen of scots know how with hearty sorrow her vile deserts compel these orders and bid her from me ask god forgiveness for her treacherous dealings towards the saviour of her for many a year to the intolerable peril of my own and yet not contented with so many forgivenesses must fault again so horribly far-passing woman's thought much less a princess instead of excusing whereof not one can sorrow it being so plainly confessed by the authors of my guiltless death let repentance take place and let not the fiend possess her so as her better part may not be lost for which i pray with hands lifted up to him that may both save and spill with my most loving adieu and prayer for thy long life your most assured and loving sovereign as thereby by good deserts induced the great point for which burleigh leicester walsingham and their colleagues had been labouring for the last eighteen years was at length accomplished they had succeeded in persuading elizabeth that mary stuart in her sternly guarded prison crippled with chronic and neuralgic maladies surrounded by spies and out of the reach of human aid was so formidable to her person and government that it was an imperative duty to herself and her protestant subjects to put her to death having once brought their long resolute mistress to this conclusion all other difficulties became matters of minor importance to the master-spirits who ruled elizabeth's council since they had only to arrange a ceremonial process for taking away the life of their defenceless captive in as plausible and formal a manner, as might be compatible with the circumstances of the case. After much deliberation, it was determined that Mary should be tried, by a commission of peers and privy councillors under the great seal. The fatal innovations which Henry VIII's despotic tyranny had made in the ancient laws of England on life and death, having rendered the crown arbitrary on these points. The commissioners for the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots, left london for fotheringay castle before the eighth of october fifteen eighty six for on that day davison dates a letter written to burleigh by her majesty's command containing various instructions in this letter davison informs the absent premier that a dutchman newly arrived from paris who was familiar with the queen-mother's jeweller had requested him to advise her majesty to be aware of one who will present a petition to her on her way to chapel or walking abroad Davison goes on to request burleigh to write to the queen to pray her to be more circumspect of her person and to avoid showing herself in public till the brunt of the business then in hand be overblown this mysterious hint of a new plot against the queen's life was in conformity with the policy of the cabinet which referred all attempts of the kind to the evil influence of the captive, Mary Stuart. From the same letter, we learn that Elizabeth had directed her Lord Chamberlain to give a verbal answer to the remonstrance of the French ambassador against bringing the Queen of Scots to a trial, and that the answer expressed her resentment at his presumption and attempting to school her. In conclusion, Davison informs Burleigh and Walsingham that he is especially commanded by her majesty to signify to them both how greatly she doth long to hear how her spirit and her moon do find themselves after so foul and wearisome a journey by the above pet names was the mighty elizabeth accustomed in moments of playfulness to designate those grave and unbending statesmen burleigh and walsingham but playfulness at such a season was certainly not only in bad taste but revolting to every feeling of humanity when the object of that foul and weary journey on which elizabeth's spirit and her moon had departed is considered the most repulsive feature in the final proceedings against the hapless mary is the odious levity with which the leading actors in the tragedy demean themselves while preparing to shed her blood and at the same time appealing to the scriptures for justification of the deed Lavesson de Castenot, the French ambassador, demanded in the name of his sovereign that Mary might be allowed the assistance of counsel. Elizabeth returned an angry verbal answer to Hatton, that she required not the advice or schooling of foreign powers to instruct her how she ought to act, and added, that she considered the Scottish queen unworthy of counsel. What, it may be asked, was this but condemnation before trial? And what result was expected from the trial of any person of whom a despotic sovereign had made such an assertion? Can any one read Elizabeth's letter to the commissioners dated October 7th, in which she charges them to forbear passing sentence on the Scottish Queen till they have returned into her presence and made their report to herself? And doubt that the death of the royal captive was predetermined? It was not till the 11th, four days after the date of this letter that they assembled at fatheringay for the business on which they had been deputed on the twelfth they opened their court mary refused to acknowledge their authority on which they delivered to her the following letter from their royal mistress queen elizabeth to mary queen of scots you have in various ways and manners attempted to take my life and to bring my kingdom to destruction by bloodshed I have never proceeded so harshly against you but have on the contrary protected and maintained you like myself these treasons will be proved to you and all made manifest yet it is my will that you answer the nobles and peers of the kingdom as if i were myself present i therefore require charge and command that you make answer for i have been well informed of your arrogance act plainly without reserve and you will sooner be able to obtain favour of me elizabeth this letter was addressed to mary without the superscription of cousin or sister and as it may be supposed from the well-known high spirit of that queen had not the slightest effect in inducing her to reply to the commissioners she told them however that she had endeavoured to gain her liberty and would continue to do so as long as she lived but that she had never plotted against the life of their queen, nor had any connection with Babington or the others, but to obtain her freedom, on which particulars, if Elizabeth chose to question her in person, she would declare the truth, but would reply to no inferior. There was no little sagacity shown in this appeal of Mary to the inquisitiveness that formed a leading trait of Elizabeth's character. The details of this celebrated process for trial it cannot be called, belonged to the personal history of Mary Stuart, rather than to the biography of Elizabeth. Suffice it therefore to say, that after two days fruitless struggle, to defend herself against the subtlety and oppression of men, who demean themselves like adverse lawyers, pleading on the side of the crown, rather than as conscientious judges, Mary demanded to be heard before the assembled parliament of England, or the queen and her council the commissioners then adjourned the court to meet october twenty fifth at the star chamber westminster on that day they reassembled and pronounced sentence of death on the scottish queen pursuant to the statute of the twenty seventh of elizabeth which had been framed for that very purpose the parliament met on the twenty ninth and having considered the reports of the commissioners united in petitioning queen elizabeth that the sentence against the scottish queen might be carried into execution elizabeth received the deputation from parliament november twelfth in her presence chamber at richmond palace mr sergeant puckering the speaker after enlarging on the offences of mary against queen elizabeth recalled to her majesty the example of god's displeasure on saul for sparing Agag and on ahab for preserving ben and after preaching a political sermon too tedious for recapitulation from these irreverent cases he assured her that her compliance with the petition would be most acceptable to god and that her people expected nothing less of her elizabeth made an elaborate and mystified harangue in reply of great length and verbosity the following passages may serve as a sample of the style and substance of this celebrated speech the bottomless graces and benefits bestowed upon me by the almighty are and have been such that i must not only acknowledge them but admire them accounting them miracles as well as benefits and now albeit i find my life hath been fully dangerously sought and death contrived by such as no desert procured yet i am therein so clear from malice, which hath the property to make men glad at the falls and faults of their foes and make them seem to do for other causes when rancour is the ground. As I protest it is and hath been my grievous thought that one not different in sex of like estate and my near kin should fall in so great a crime. Yea, I had so little purpose to pursue her with any colour of malice that it is not unknown to some of my lords here for now i will play the blab i secretly wrote her a letter on the discovery of sundry treasons that if she would confess them and privately acknowledge them by her letters to myself she never need be called for them in so public question neither did i it of mine to circumvent her for i knew as much as she could confess and if even yet now that the matter is made but too apparent I thought she truly would repent as perhaps she would easily appear in outward show to do and that on her account no one would take the matter upon them or if we were but as two milkmaids with our pails on our arms or if there were no more dependences upon us but mine own life only in danger and not the whole estate of your religion i protest whereon you may believe me for though i have many vices I hope I have not accustomed my tongue to be an instrument of untruth. I would most willingly pardon and remit this offence. Lest however any one should be deceived by all this parade of mercy and christian charity into the notion that it was her sincere wish to save her unfortunate kinswoman, she concluded her speech by informing them. That she had just received information of another plot in which the conspirators had bound themselves under the penalty of death to take away her life within the month thus exciting a more deadly flame of loyal indignation in their bosoms against the powerless object of their fury who was pointed at as the inciter of all attempts against the person of elizabeth the parliament responded in the tone that was desired with a more ardent requisition for the blood of mary elizabeth faltered not from womanly feelings of tenderness and compassion towards the defenceless object of their fury but from certain doubts and misgivings within her own mind which produced one of her characteristic fits of irresolution her mind was tempest-tossed between her desire of mary's death and her reluctance to stand forth to the world as her acknowledged executioner she would have the deed performed some other way but how the dial spake not, but it gave shrewd signs, and pointed full upon the stroke of murder. One at least of her ministers entered into the feelings of his royal mistress, on this delicate subject, and to his eternal infamy, endeavored to relieve her from her embarrassment, as to the means of removing the victim, without the undesirable eclat of a public execution. Leicester wrote from Holland to suggest, the sure but silent operation of poison. He even sent a divine over to convince the more scrupulous Walsingham of the lawfulness of the means proposed, but that stern politician was resolutely bent on maintaining a show of justice and at the same time exalting the power of his royal mistress by bringing the Queen of Scotland to the block. Burley coincided in this determination and in his letters to Leicester complained, that the queen's slackness did not stand with her surety or their own. The personal influence of Leicester with the sovereign appears to have been required for the consummation of the tragedy. He was remanded home in November and seems to have taken an active part in preventing Elizabeth from swerving from the point to which her ministers had brought her on the twenty second of november lord buckhurst and sir robert beale proceeded in pursuance of the orders in council and her majesty's command to fatheringay castle to announce to the queen of scots that the sentence of death had been pronounced against her by the commissioners and ratified by the parliament of england they executed their ungracious errand without the slightest delicacy or consideration for the feelings of the royal victim telling her that she must not hope for mercy adding taunts on the score of her religious opinions very much at variance with the divine spirit of christianity and concluded by ordering her chamber and her bed to be hung with black the conduct of sir amyas paulet was even more ungraciously brutal and unmanly and reflects great disgrace on the character of any sovereign to whom such petty instances of malice could be supposed acceptable proofs of his zeal against her fallen enemy meantime the french ambassador la bispan castenot having written in great alarm to henry the third that the queen of england was proceeding he feared to extremities with the queen of scots and urged him to interfere for her preservation that monarch despatched monsieur de pompon de Bellevere as an ambassador extraordinary for the purpose of remonstrating with elizabeth against the outrage she was preparing to commit and using every species of intercession for the preservation of mary's life beliver landed at dover after a stormy passage november twenty ninth having suffered so severely from sea sickness, together with one of the gentlemen of the suite that they were unable to proceed till they had reposed themselves for a day and night elizabeth or her council more probably took advantage of this circumstance to delay the new envoy's audience under pretence that he and his company had brought the infection of the plague from france and that it would be attended with great peril to her royal person if she admitted them into her presence it was also asserted that beliver had brought over some unknown men who had come expressly to assassinate her these reports appeared to have been very offensive to the embassy, and are ascribed by the indignant secretary of legation, by whom the transactions of that eventful period were recorded, for the information of his court, to the infinite malice of the Queen. Elizabeth had withdrawn to her winter quarters at Richmond, and it was not till the 7th of December, that the urgency of Beliver induced her to grant him his first audience he came to her after dinner on that day accompanied by la bispan the resident french minister and all the gentlemen who had attended him from france elizabeth received them in her presence chamber seated on her throne and surrounded by her nobles and the lords of her council leicester had placed himself in close contiguity to the royal person but when the french envoy proceeded to open the business on which he came she bade her presumptuous master of the horse fall back his colleagues hearing this command addressed to him took the hint and withdrew also to a little distance beliver then delivered the remonstrances on the part of his sovereign in behalf of the scottish queen his sister-in-law elizabeth interrupted him many times answering him point by point speaking in good french but not so loud that she could be heard all over the saloon when she mentioned the Queen of Scots, she appeared under the influence of passion, which was expressed by her countenance. She burst into invectives against her, accused her of ingratitude for the many favors which she said she had conferred upon her. Although it was impossible for hatred and revenge to have worked more deadly mischief against another than such love as hers had wrought to the hapless victim of her treachery she went on to comment on the address belliver had just delivered observing that monsieur had quoted several examples drawn from history but she had read much and seen many books in her lifetime more indeed than thousands of her sex and rank had done but never had she met with or heard of such an attempt as that which had been planned against her by her own kinswoman whom the king her brother-in-law ought not to support in her malice but rather to aid her in bringing speedily to justice elizabeth went on to say that she had had great experience in the world having known what it was to be both subject and sovereign and the difference also between good neighbours and those who were evilly disposed towards her she told beliver who was a nobleman of high rank and singular eloquence that she was very sorry he had not been sent on a better occasion that she had been compelled to come to the resolution she had taken, because it was impossible to save her own life if she preserved the Queen of Scots. But if the ambassadors could point out any means whereby she might do it, consistently with her own security, she should be greatly obliged to them, never having shed so many tears at the death of her father, of her brother King Edward, or her sister Mary, as she had done for this unfortunate affair. She then inquired after the health of the King of France and the Queen Mother, and, after promising the ambassador that he should have an answer in four days, she retired to her apartment. Beliver returned to London, where he vainly waited for the promised answer, and at last repaired, with La Bisbonne to Richmond, once more to solicit another audience. Beliver, considering that she was trifling with him, demanded his passport, observing at the same time, that it was useless for him to remain longer in england elizabeth on this sent hunsdon and walsingham to him to appoint an audience for the following monday the following lively account of this reception and the altercations which took place between the two french ambassadors and her majesty on that occasion is related in a joint letter from beliver and la bispan to their sovereign henry III. the third the lady, queen elizabeth gave us audience on the appointed day monday in her chamber of presence we recommenced the same prayer with all the urgency that was possible and spoke in such a manner that we could not be heard save by her principal counsellors but she rejoined in so loud a tone that we were put in pain because we were using prayer as the necessity of the affair required and by her answers we could not but understand that our plaint was refused after she had continued long and repeated many times the same language she averted to morgan and said wherefore is it that having signed a league which i observe does not he the king of france observe it also in a case which is so important to all princes assuring us that if any of her subjects I, those that were nearest of kin naming at the same time and showing us my lord the chamberlain who is her cousin german had enterprise things to the prejudice of your majesty's life she would have sent him to you for purgation to which we answered that he had not that if morgan having been on her sole account for a long time detained in a strong prison in france had plotted a little against her majesty he could not do her any harm as he was in ward that the queen of scotland has fallen into such a miserable state and has found so many enemies in this kingdom that there was no need to go and search for them in france to accelerate her ruin and that it would be deemed a thing too monstrous and inhuman for the king to send the knife to cut the throat of his sister-in-law to whom both in the sight of god and man he owed his protection we could not believe but that we had satisfied her with this answer but she abandoned the subject of morgan and flew to that of charles paget saying wherefore is he not sent we replied that we did not consider that paget was in your majesty's power as paris was a great forest that your majesty would not refuse to perform any office of friendship that could be expected but that she must please to reflect that you could not always do as you would wish in the present state of your realm, for your majesty had been censured at Rome and elsewhere for the detention of Morgan, which was done solely out of respect to her. On which she said to us, that the said pageant had promised to Monsieur de Guise to kill her, but that she had means enough in Paris to have him killed, if she wished. She said this on purpose so loud, that the archers of her guard could hear, as to Morgan, she said, that he had within three months sent to her, that if she would please to accord him her grace, he would discover all the conspiracy of the Queen of Scotland, adding, that he was very ill-guarded in the Bastille, for the Bishop of Glasgow had spoken more than 20 times to him, and that he was also free to converse with whomsoever he thought proper. Then the said lady, lowering her voice, told us, that she would wish us to be well advised desiring the good of your majesty and that you could not do better than to give shortly a good peace to your subjects otherwise she could foresee great injury to your realm which a great number of foreigners would enter in such a sort that it would not be very easy to find a remedy to the evil on this we took upon ourselves to tell her that your majesty desired nothing more than to see your country in a happy repose and would feel obliged to all princes your neighbours who had the same wish if they would counsel your subjects to that effect when they addressed themselves to them that the queen your mother at her age had taken the trouble to seek the king of navarre for this good purpose and that it was our opinion that they would now enter into a treaty that the king your majesty and all good people desired much the preservation of the king of Navarre, but that it was impossible for you to assist him, if the aid was not reciprocal on his side. That knowing the respect that the said king of Navarre bore to her, we thought the good counsel she might give him would greatly tend to accelerate the blessing of peace. While holding this discourse to her, it seemed to us, considering her countenance, we had talked of a thing that was distasteful to her, for she turned away her head, as not wishing to proceed with the topic, and said to us in Latin, he is of age. We observed to her that she talked much of leagues and of armies, but she ought to wish that your majesty, who has never willingly consented to anything which was prejudicial to his realm, were delivered from these unhappy civil wars, and to consider that she could not take the same assurances of all other princes on this she said that we might perhaps mean the king of spain but that her enmity and his having commenced with love we ought not to think that they could not be well together whenever she wished in truth sire we believe that she might very easily enter into such relations as she chose with that king as far as we can judge she has not the means needful for sustaining a war against so powerful a prince being infinitely sparing of her money and her people very desirous of a peace with spain as they have lost all their commerce on account of the war it seems that this queen has determined rather to accord with spain than continue the war and we understand that she has sent several missions to the duke of parma as to the disposition of this princess touching the peace of your realm we have written to you what she has said to us upon it her counsellors hold no other language to us but from what we can gather from the gentlemen of this country and the french refugees here all the council of england consider that the tranquilization of france would be their ruin and they fear nothing so much as to see an end of the civil wars in your kingdom. Her majesty returned to the subject of the Queen of Scots, saying, That she had given us several days to consider of some means, whereby she could preserve the princess's life, without being in danger of losing her own, and not being yet satisfied on that point, nor having yet found any other expedient. She could not be cruel against herself, and that your majesty ought not to consider it just, that she who is innocent should die and that the queen of scotland who is guilty should be saved after many propositions on one part and the other on this subject she rose up we continued the same entreaties on which she said to us that in a few days she would give us an answer the next day we were apprised that they had made proclamation through this city that sentence of death had been given against the queen of scotland she has been proclaimed a traitorous, incapable of succeeding to the crown, and worthy of death. The Earl of Pembroke, the mayor and alderman of the city of London, assisted at this proclamation, and the same instant, all the bells in this city began to ring. This was followed universally throughout the realm of England, and they continued these ringings for the space of 24 hours, and have also made many bonfires of rejoicing, for the determination taken by their queen against the Queen of Scotland. This gave us occasion to write to the said lady, Queen Elizabeth, the letter of which we send a copy to your majesty. Not being able to devise any other remedy, we have made supplication that she would defer the execution of the judgment, till we could learn what it would please your majesty to do and say in remonstrance. The said lady sent word to us, that on the morrow morning she would let us know her answer by one of her councillors of state the day passed and we had not any news this morning the sieur a member of her council came to us on the part of the said lady queen with her excuse that we had not heard from her yesterday on account of the indisposition of her majesty and after a long discourse on the reasons which had moved them to proceed to this judgment he said that out of the respect that she the queen had for your majesty she was content to grant a delay of the term of twelve days before proceeding to the execution of the judgment without pledging herself however to observe such delay if in the interim anything should be attempted against her which might move her to alter her mind and the said lady has accorded a like delay to the ambassadors of scotland who have made to her a similar request they have declared to this queen that if she will put to death the Queen of Scotland, the king, her son, is determined to renounce all the friendship and alliance that he has with England, and to advise with his friends how he shall proceed in her cause, at which she has put herself into a great fury. The report of the French Ambassadors is dated December 18th, 1586. On the 19th, Queen Mary addressed the following noble letter to Elizabeth. The queen of scots to queen elizabeth fotheringay december nineteenth fifteen eighty six madam having with difficulty obtained leave from those to whom you have committed me to open to you all i have on my heart as much for exonerating myself from any ill will or desire of committing cruelty or any act of enmity against those with whom i am connected in blood as also kindly to communicate to you what i thought would serve you as much for your weal and preservation as for the maintenance of the peace and repose of this isle which can only be injured if you reject my advice you will credit or disbelieve my discourse as it seems best to you i am resolved to strengthen myself in christ jesus alone who to those invoking him with a true heart never fails in his justice and consolation, especially to those who are bereft of all human aid. Such are under his holy protection, to him be the glory. He has equaled my expectation, having given me heart and strength, in spe contra spem, that is, in hope against hope. To endure the unjust calumnies, accusations and condemnations, of those who have no such jurisdiction over me, with a constant resolution to suffer death, for upholding the obedience and authority of the apostolic roman catholic church now since i have been on your part informed of the sentence of your last meeting of parliament lord buckhurst and beale having admonished me to prepare for the end of my long and weary pilgrimage i beg to return you thanks on my part for these happy tidings and to entreat you to vouchsafe to me certain points for the discharge of my conscience but since sir a paulet has informed me though falsely that you had indulged me by having restored to me my almner and the money that they had taken from me and that the remainder would follow for all this i would willingly return you thanks and supplicate still further as a last request which i have thought for many reasons i ought to ask of you alone that you will accord this ultimate grace for which i should not like to be indebted to any other since i have no hope of finding aught but cruelty from the puritans who are at this time god knows wherefore the first in authority and the most bitter against me i will accuse no one may i pardon with a sincere heart every one even as i desire every one may grant forgiveness to me god the first but i know that you more than any one ought to feel at heart the honor or dishonor of your own blood and moreover of a queen and the daughter of a king then madam for the sake of that jesus to whose name all powers bow i require you to ordain that when my enemies have slaked their black thirst for my innocent blood you will permit my poor desolated servants altogether to carry away my corpse to bury it in holy ground with the other queens of france my predecessors especially near the late queen my mother having this in recollection that in scotland the bodies of the kings my predecessors have been outraged and the churches profaned and abolished and that as i shall suffer in this country i shall not be given place near the kings your predecessors who are mine as well as yours for according to our religion we think much of being interred in holy earth as they tell me that you will in nothing force my conscience nor my religion and have even conceded me a priest refuse me not this my last request that you will permit me free sepulchre to this body when the soul is separated which when united could never obtain liberty to live in repose such as you would procure for yourself against which repose before god i speak i never aimed a blow but god will let you see the truth of all after my death and because i dread the tyranny of those to whose power you have abandoned me i entreat you not to permit that execution be done on me without your own knowledge nor for fear of the torment which i am most ready to suffer but on account of the reports which will be raised concerning my death without other witnesses than those who would inflict it who i am persuaded would be of very different qualities from those parties whom i require being my servants to be spectators and withal witnesses of my end in the faith of our sacrament of my savior and in obedience to his church and after all is over that they together may carry away my poor corpse as secretly as you please and speedily withdraw without taking with them any of my goods except those which in dying i may lead to them which are little enough for their long and good services one jewel that i received of you i shall return to you with my last words or sooner if you please once more i supplicate to you to permit me to send a jewel and a last adieu to my son with my dying benediction for of my blessing he has been deprived since you sent me his refusal to enter into the treaty whence i was excluded by his wicked counsel this last point i refer to your favorable consideration and conscience as the others but i ask them in the name of jesus christ and in respect of our consanguinity and for the sake of king henry the seventh your grandfather and mine and by the honor of the dignity we both hold and of our sex in common do i implore you to grant these requests as to the rest i think you know that in your name they have taken down my dais canopy and raised seat but afterwards they own to me that it was not by your commandment but by the intimation of some of your privy council, i thank god that this wickedness came not from you and that it serves rather to vent their malice than to afflict me having made up my mind to die it is on this account and some others that they debarred me from writing to you and after they had done all in their power to degrade me from my rank they told me that i was but a mere dead woman incapable of dignity god be praised for all i wish that all my papers were brought to you without reserve that at last it may be manifest to you that the sole care of your safety was not confined to those who are so prompt to persecute me if you will accord this my last request i would wish that you would write for them otherwise they do with them as they choose and moreover i wish that to this my last request you will let me know your last reply to conclude i pray god the just judge of his mercy that he will enlighten you with his holy spirit and that he will give me his grace to die in the perfect charity i am disposed to do and to pardon all those who have caused or have cooperated in my death such will be my last prayer to my end which i esteem myself happy will precede the persecution which i foresee menaces this isle where god is no longer seriously feared and revered but vanity and worldly policy rule and govern all yet will i accuse no one nor give way to presumption yet while abandoning this world and preparing myself for a better i must remind you that one day you will have to answer for your charge and for all those whom you doom and that i desire that my blood and my country may be remembered in that time for why from the first days of our capacity to comprehend our duties we ought to bend our minds to make the things of this world yield to those of eternity from fortringey or Fotheringay, this nineteenth of december fifteen eighty six your sister and cousin prisoner wrongfully marie Voynier. the effect produced by this touching but dignified appeal to the conscience of elizabeth is rather hinted at than described by the pitiless satrap leicester in one of his pithy letters to walsingham there is a letter from the scottish queen writes he that hath wrought tears but i trust shall do no further herein albeit the delay is too dangerous who can read this remark without perceiving the fact that in this instance as well as in the tragedy of her maternal kinsman the duke of norfolk elizabeth's relentings were overruled and her female heart steeled against the natural impulses of mercy by the ruthless men whose counsels influenced her resolves. Had Elizabeth exercised her own unbiased judgment, and yielded to the angel whisperings of women's gentler nature, which disposed her to draw back from affixing her signature to the fatal warrant, her annals would have remained unsullied by a crime, which can neither be justified on moral or political grounds. End of section 3